There's two ways you can preach if you're a preacher. Well, there's more than two ways, but there's two main ways that, that, that people are taught. One of which, which is the one I often do, which is you talk around a particular passage and you expand on that passage. That's called uh, expository preaching. Okay? But there's another type of preaching, which we do sometimes, which is to look at a big theme, to look at a big picture. And that's called systematic preaching, which is you look at all the different things that the Bible says about it all the way through. So this morning is a systematic. Why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because you need to get your fingers ready to go through all the different bits of the Bible because we're going to be looking at lots of different verses from lots of different places. So that, that, that'll have two functions, one of which is it, it's exercise for your fingers, but apart from that, it'll, it'll keep you awake. Yeah, and it's important to be awake on a hot morning. Okay, so this morning, uh, I've been talking the last few weeks about um, how to flow with the Holy Spirit. And this is actually the last one that I'm going to talk about on this, because God's sort of uh, moving us on and building on what we've been learning and what we've been equipped for in order to mobilize us further as we go into the summer and beyond the summer. So... Um, this morning, I'm just going to finish that off with something that I have never, ever heard taught on. And when you, when, when you, you understand what I'm, about, what I'm going to say, you'll, you'll be as shocked as I am that I've never heard anybody teach on this. And so, we started this series by looking and talking about a prophecy that a great uh, man of God called Smith Wigglesworth gave. And he, uh, just before he died, he predicted that there was going to be a number of moves of God. And just to remind you, in case you weren't here, basically he said that straight after the war, there would be a healing revival. And there was, with the great healing evangelists of the 50s, people like Oral Roberts and A.A. Allen and so on. And then he said that would be followed by a move where the word of God would be turned to first place in the church. And that was done, that came about, the word of faith movement was birthed. And he said that that what would then happen, that there would be a move of the Spirit where we would discover the spiritual gifts. And from that move, people would leave traditional churches and form new churches. And that's what they did in the 60s, 70s, early 80s with the whole house church movement, as people start discovering that, that... Church wasn't about just the man at the front doing the ministry. It was for everybody to get involved in ministry, discover the spiritual gifts that God had given them, and to move in the supernatural as they they went about things. And there's a real hunger for that, and that birthed a whole lot of movements around house churches. Smith Wigglesworth said that that movement would wane. And... That's what we've seen. We've seen the movement that was very hungry for the things of the Spirit. Now, over the last 10 years or so, push the things of the Spirit to one side in the church and to return almost to its original state of uh, some teaching and a very uh, formalized service. It doesn't look like it used to, but it's basically three songs, quick offering, short preach, Let's get people in and out of the door. And, and there's, although we use words like, yes, we're charismatic, or we uh, uh, believe that God heals, or we believe in the supernatural, and yes, we, 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 we love the things of the Spirit, in practice, you never see them. And they're never taught about, and nobody gets to practice them. Because that movement has waned. And Smith Wigglesworth said this, that when you see that movement wane... That is the sign that the last great move of God is about to begin. And it's a move of the word and the spirit together. And he, he uh, prophesied this move of God. Some people uh, have also prophesied and talked about a, 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 the glorious church that exists before Jesus comes back. In other words, the church polarizes between those who, whose love has grown cold and then they're nominal and they fall away as persecution comes. But there is a glorious church that moves in power and it's the bride that says, come, come for me, Jesus. 
So yeah, that, that's, that's what you can expect. That's what we're expecting. And I believe that's the time we're living in. I believe that this, that move of the word and the spirit together has already started. I believe the tide has turned. You, you don't see immediately when the tide has turned, but it has turned. And, and, and it, it's starting to wash up on the shore now. And we're starting to see things. We're starting to see, you know, even in our own midst, and it, we've always seen healings, but we've seen an increase in healings. We, we've always seen salvations, but we've seen more people come to Christ in, in recent months. We, we've always seen deliverance and, and, and people being get set free, but that, again, is, is growing. And, and the number of changed lives we're seeing is just fantastic. So we want to play our part. We want to be part of that. So it's word and spirit together. So what's going to happen this morning is I'm going to give you some word, and then we're going to, talk, then we're going to see what the Holy Spirit has to do. Is that all right? Now, I was at a wedding last week, a fantastic wedding, Hannah Belbin's wedding, and there was a number of people that I spoke to there, and it was like a continuing theme. And it's a continuing theme that I've been hearing a lot of over the last few months. And, it, and it's this, is we know there's more, but, you know, our church just isn't interested, or our church has shut it down, or we used to do so much more, but now we don't. And, and there's a hunger in people and a, and, and a dryness and a desire for more that, that they are wanting to step into but are holding back because they're, they're, they're in that place where they're not sure well, what's right, what's wrong, can I do that? Should, should I move to see more? What, how does it all work? And, and there's that latent hunger out there. And what I've seen is that more and more people are hungry for that thing of God. And, and so I ended up talking to a lot of people at this wedding who were hungry for God but aren't willing to actually get up and do anything about it just yet. And I remember like 20 years ago, there was a phrase we used and it was, there's more. And I actually thought, you know, like we have this, you know, you get funny things that come in your head. I thought, well, we have this phrase, this strap line under faith life that says rooted and grounded in love. And, and I almost had this moment where I thought, Changing it and, and to faith life because you know there's more. <laughs> but then this horrible thought came into me, like, faith life, because you're worth it. <laughs> but that's the point. Why does faith life exist? Because there's more. That's, the, that's our core message. There is more. There's, there's more, and that's why we're here. We carry the weight of that and the responsibility of that, and the burden of that, and, and we're looking for people who want that more. We're not looking for uh, just, yeah, this, this word kept coming out in answer, like, why don't you do something about that desire for more? And, and this answer came, and, and I, you know, like, you want to scream, but you can't because you're at a wedding. And it, it was, but it's convenient for us where we are. Guys, we need to not be about convenient. We give our life to Christ 24-7. It's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. He's got my life. It's inconvenient for me. I gave it to him. But I'm not taking it back because he's my saving. He's the only one who's worth my life. And, and convenience doesn't come into it. And, the, the, you know... People go, well, we'd love to see revival in this land, but it's not convenient, is it, then? What, what are we going to say when we stand before God and say, God, you wanted to move across this land, but we didn't think it was convenient? What are we going to say? And, and I don't know how to phrase that to people because we get all this hyper-spiritual, wonderful stuff. Oh, oh well, we, we all need to, to just find our own way and everything is okay. Actually, No. I know this is controversial, but actually, no, it's not okay. The gospel just does not consist of teaching and the occasional decent preaching. It doesn't stop there. There's no full stop when Jesus describes it. Jesus says that the gospel is to preach the word, tell people that the kingdom of heaven is on hand, and demonstrate it by healing the sick, casting out demons, cleansing lepers, raising the dead, and seeing the kingdom come. That's how Jesus defines the gospel. But we've made it so small that it's now about the occasional bit of preaching of the word and, and, and some good music. 
And Jesus doesn't talk. He says, that's not the gospel. That's not what I sent you to do. I sent you to bring the kingdom. So when we say, okay, well, let's just, oh, it's all okay. It's not okay. It's not okay not to desire things of the supernatural and seek to be equipped in them. It's not okay not to be able to demonstrate the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what it is. It's convenient for a pastor to not have to do all that stuff because then he can't be embarrassed when it doesn't work. But the only way, do you know the only way that the supernatural works is when you go beyond what is possible for you. And it's only when you're beyond what is possible for you that he can step in and do what is supernatural. And we've got to have a willingness to go beyond what is uh, possible for us, risk embarrassment, and go for it anyway. Amen? So what's this more we talk about? The more we talk about... By the way, while while I'm talking about what the more is, you can find Hebrews chapter 6. The more we talk about is... We sometimes call it the empowerment uh, known as the anointing. Have you heard that word, the anointing? The anointing is the empowerment of God to, to work the works of God by the gifts of the Spirit. And that's, that's included, you know, like, I want more. We want more of you, God. That, that's, that's partly what we're talking about. But also when we talk about we want more, some of us mean that we... Um, are looking for God to draw near with his presence. To, to rend the heavens, step down out of heaven and invade our reality here and change things. And, and we're looking for him to move in that way. We're looking for him to come in our meetings as corporately we worship him and, and pour out our hearts to him. That's the, that's the more. You know, there is so much more. The, the, the reason that it's so hard to say, well, I want more, is because... There's much more than we can ever imagine. You know, there's more, there's more power, there's more healing, there's more life, there's more joy, there's more freedom, there's more conviction of sin, there's more burden for the lost, there's more revelation of the things of God, there's more understanding of his ways, there's more um, uh, deliverance, there's, there's, there's life changed, there's, there's the culture of the church changed, and, and ultimately when we say we want more, we just want God, and I just want God, and I want God in, in whatever way he chooses to come, in whatever manifestation, and I want to see bodies healed, life changed, people delivered. Why is that so important? Because that's the gospel, that's what Jesus died to make possible, and but it's equally important. You know, I, I'm staggered by the fact that we don't think it's important. You, you know, in the church body, we, we're not mobilized to, as, as if we really do believe this is important. Because there, 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 there is a whole city, towns, region out there that is going to hell, and we don't think it's important. And, and there's, there's sick people in our congregations, but we don't think it's important enough to press in on healing and, and step out beyond what it is and, and perhaps get a bit embarrassed and a bit disappointed because we'd rather that we just said, oh, Jesus doesn't do that anymore. Well, he does do that, and he's been doing that for weeks and months here, so we know he does that. Amen? Amen. And so we want more. And I, and I remember... And, One of the big keys to this more is how do we get from where we are now to living in that more? Yeah? So, I don't know, this is is a bit of a flashback. I don't know some of you weren't around at the time, but I'm going to give you a little bit of church history, recent church history. And it it runs like this. Basically, um, some men of God in Argentina... Uh, a number of prominent individuals. It starts at a church in Restitencia in Argentina, a whole Catholic town. And the whole Catholic town, uh, there's a a guy there called Ed Silvozo, and he mobilized all the churches, all the Catholic churches, to go around the city praying for people, blessing people. And he hired, they hired the radio stations for three days, and they put it, put it all out, and they held a prayer rally at the end of it, and the town, the whole town, more or less, turned to Christ. And the Argentine revival kicked off, and it, there's, there's some immense individuals in that. 
Omar Cabrera, um, Claudio Friedson, Carlos Onacondi, and several others. And, and what was a, a very dead, uh, religious, doesn't care about God nation, became an on-fire nation. The whole land was transformed. Now, what happened as a result of that is people started going down and visiting what was happening. And uh, one of, the, people, one of the, the really prominent people that went down, invited by Ed Silvoso, went down uh, and they're paid for by Omar Cabrera is, um, and Claudio Friedson, is John and Carol Arnett. And they went down there, they were laid hands on, they came back to Toronto, and they'd been praying for about, I think it was about six months before, they, they, they had decided or committed to God that they'd give up every morning to pray for a move of God. So they went down there and came back. Same time, a, a young preacher at that time, well, fairly young guy called Randy Clark, who came out of the vineyard movement, being paid for by John Wimber, also went down there, paid for by Omar Cabrera, comes back, goes to Florida, he's paid for, he goes to uh, something that's broken out there, led by a guy called Rodney Howard Brown. Rodney Howard Brown lays hands on him. The Holy Spirit touches him. John Arna invites him to Toronto. He goes up to Toronto, and this outpouring of the Spirit starts. And as this outpouring of the Spirit starts, and the Holy Spirit starts moving... The, the, you, the, there's a phenomenon that, that we don't, forgot was meant to exist in the church, in that what happened there was carried to many nations. And many nations did different things with it. I, you know, the UK at the time, it was front-page news as churches were getting touched by the Holy Spirit. Literally front-page news, Daily Express, Times, whatever. Um, and, and different nations got touched in different ways. But, and they, they handle that in different ways. But the point is that what happened is this thing was transferable. So the more that went people, people were getting on airplanes, going to Toronto, getting paid for, getting handled laid on, coming back and their church would ignite the following week. Because it was transferable. Now, the question is, What's that all about then? How, how, how does that work? Let me show you something. Because what, this, is a, this move that, we are, that is starting is a move of the word and spirit. So we want to be grounded in the word. Let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 6. Let's see what it says. Paul is talking about some basic things. He's saying, guys, I'd, I'd really like to talk to you about some deeper stuff now. And this is what he says. Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles about Christ, let's go on to perfection, not laying again the stuff we've already talked about. You know, like, isn't that what we're doing in church? We just talk about that same little group of stuff and we never move on and go any deeper. So not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith towards God. So repentance from dead works, faith towards God, Doctrine of baptisms, baptism in water, baptism of spirit, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And I was reading that the other day, and that just shocked me. I have never heard anybody talk about the doctrine of laying on of hands. And Paul's going, oh, well, whoever wrote Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, he's saying, these are elementary principles, and I want you to move on from that. And we're go I'm going like... We're not doing that. We have, there's an elementary thing that Paul thought was so basic we needed to move on from. And now I've never heard anybody talk about it. I've, I've never heard anybody teaching on it. It's fundamental, foundational, basic to the whole church, and nobody ever talks about it. And we never do it. Well, some churches do it, but when we do it, we don't understand it. I was talking to Becky the other day, and she said, I love it. We, I see it all the time. I, I'm up there for the prayer lines, but I don't know why. I'm just hungry, but that's okay. But it is biblical, and that's how what God does in one place and in one person gets moved and transfers and ignites all over the place. That's what happened with Toronto. People laid hands on, Holy Spirit touched them, they came back, and the whole church ignited. Because there's an anointing that is transferred. 
this, in both covenants in the Bible, there's this principle of the anointing of God resting on people's lives. It operates differently in the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit isn't poured out on everyone at that point or available to everyone at that point. But it's the same principle. There's a, there's a shadow in the Old Testament and the reality when we get in the New Covenant. And um, this word that I want you to think about is impartation. And the word impartation is probably better translated transference of anointing, transference of spirit. And uh, what you find is that there's two ways, biblically, that anointing comes on a person's life. So, right now, just have a think. Do I need more of the anointing and more of the presence and power of God on my life? What's the answer? Yes. Good. Good. It's still awake. If, it, if it's no, then, then I worry at this point. <laughs> But yeah, we should. We, need, we always need more because there always is more. We can't exhaust the more of God. And, and there's two ways biblically this happens. One of which is in response to prayer, where we ask God. And the other of which is laying on of hands. So, in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 11, we see this. I'll just uh, turn that up. We see, um, basically, at that point, what's happening is that the Spirit of God, the anointing of God, is resting on Moses. One man carries the anointing of God. He's the only one with the Spirit. It's all covenant. And Moses is saying to God, I'm not enough myself, even that, because the people of Israel, they need looking after. And, and God says this to him, gather 70 of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and office of them, bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, big tent, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and I'm going to talk to you there. And more of God, the manifest presence of God comes down. And this is what he does. He makes that presence, that anointing that he, he brings down, that anointing that has rested on Moses because he's been on the presence of God and God's anointed him. He takes it, the spirit that's on Moses... And he puts it on them as well. Now, what I want you to see is this isn't, this isn't Moses' spirit that he's giving to them. It's the same spirit that is anointing Moses is anointing them. It's a God act. It's his spirit on Moses and he is anointing them with that same spirit. It's God's spirit, not man's. So when we talk about an impartation of anointing, we're not after what the man has. You know, you, I, I remember going forward and I've responded to these sort of things. Would you like the anointing that's on Smith Wigglesworth's life? Well, who wouldn't? But he's dead, isn't he? And, and pe you know, some people do all sorts of things thinking they're going to get the anointing of the man. It's not the anointing of the man, it's the anointing of God that he transfers and puts on other people. It's not the man's spirit, it's the spirit resting on the man that he then puts on others. You see, this is all about God. It's all about what he can do and only he can do. It's, a, it's about what, what he's able to do. And therefore, it's God's spirit we're talking about. Uh, Deuteronomy 34 verse 9 says this. Um, have we got it there? Joshua, so Joshua is about to be, he's getting commissioned by Moses, and Joshua, who was a soldier, is about to take the people into the promised land, not Moses. And he's going, but I'm only a soldier. I'm not Moses. So how do I do it? And this is what God says, and this is what Moses does. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. God puts the spirit of wisdom on him. Why? How did that happen? For Moses laid hands on him. The, as Moses laid hands on him, the anointing of the spirit on Moses' life, the spirit of wisdom, also came on Joshua's life by the laying on of hands. Yeah? Um, really well-known story refers to Elijah and Elisha. I'm not going to go through that because it's quite a long story, but basically Elijah has a number of followers 
Uh, and Elisha is one of those followers. And because he's such a faithful follower, and, and because Elijah sees that Elisha is so hungry for God, he says to him, what do you want? Why, why, why do you stand out amongst my followers? Why, why are you the one that stuck with me? And Elisha says, I want what you've got. And, and I want more of what you've got. You know, people get hung up about this double portion. All he's saying is, I want more. If there's more, I want more. You know, we're not, we're not trying to double up. God's inexhaustible. There's always more. There's a triple anointing, quadruple anointing, whatever, because there's always more. So don't get hung up on that. All he's saying is, I want what you've got, and I want more. more. And Elijah, under revelation from God, basically says, if you were with me when I go up to heaven, you get it. Now, Elisha has to overcome a number of obstacles and a number of self-doubt points to get there. But basically, when Elijah is about to go up to heaven, what happens is that um, this chariot comes, chariot of fire, and separates the two of them. So Elisha can't, basically, so Elisha can't go to heaven because he, he wants what, Moses, uh, what Elijah's got. And Elijah doesn't get, a lot of people think Elijah went up in the chariot of fire to heaven. He doesn't. That's just what stops Elisha getting to him. There's, there's a big angel guy stopping Elisha going where Elijah's gone. Elijah gets taken up in a whirlwind. And as he's taken up in this whirlwind, his cloak is blown off and comes to ground. And as Elisha picks that up, he gets that anointing. It's transferred by the cloak. It's the spirit of God that rested on Elijah gets transferred, just like laying on of hands, only Elijah's not there, by the cloak that he was wearing. And so that's how we see it in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, what, what's, the, what's the point of, of the old Elijah, Elisha story? The point of it is this. You get the more only by being hungry for the more. Because you'll have obstacles to overcome. You don't get the more by going where it's convenient or doing what's convenient. You get the more by doing what's inconvenient and choosing to go after it. And so in the New Testament, we see this, this same principle. We see uh, the, the, the laying on of hands, that thing that Paul calls basic doctrine, simple stuff, we see it in all sorts of ways. I, I don't know if you've ever spotted any of this, because it was like a real revelation to me. How, how often you see this? The laying on of hands and the transference of anointing. It's, it's like everywhere. So when they, when they were uh, raising somebody up in ministry in their churches, so uh, for instance, when Paul uh, raises and appoints Timothy, he ordains him. We call it ordination now. What's ordination? Ordination is laying on of hands to transfer and empower for ministry. It's not a religious service. So Timothy, uh, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, uh, 4, 4.14, he says this, Don't neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, so he spoke it over him, and the laying on of hands of the eldership, it was imparted to him. Timothy was empowered for supernatural ministry by the, with the Spirit of God by laying on of hands and speaking over him. And then later on, he has to say, but, but be really clear that you don't release people to that level unless they've shown themselves to be of good character. So he says, don't be hasty about doing that because you, you want to know that somebody is able to carry the gifting that is on their life. And, and so often we have seen that where, where people are hugely gifted by God, really gifted by God, but the character and the integrity is not there. And they end up making a mess of God's church. And so that, that's, that's what that, that, that's about. You may, maybe have seen that, that passage before. And in Acts 6, we see it repeated over and over again. Well, right through Acts, you see this principle of laying on of hands repeated over and over again. Uh, basically, when... The, the church just grows and grows and grows like mad. It needs a bit of organization. And the apostles say, well, we can't do it because we're praying and studying the word. And they appoint some people called deacons. 
And, and they, they pray over them. And this is what they did. Whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. They empowered them to do their ministry. The anointing was released to them through the laying of hands. Now, you also see laying on of hands because it's a release of the spirit. Um, all the Roberts and Richard Roberts refer it to slightly differently. They call it your point of contact. It's when you release, they call it looking at it when they release your faith. But, but what's happening is that we release faith and that releases anointing. And so when, when you see Jesus ministering, uh, he, he lays on hands on lots of people. And uh, he'll lay hands on, for instance, in uh, Mark chapter 10, he'll lay hands on, have we got Mark chapter 10? They ministered to the Lord and fasted. Sorry, sorry, I didn't want that one. I've gone past that one. Next one. That's what. So, little children come to me. So, you, you, you know, he's laying hands on little kids and he's empowering them and he's blessing them. He goes, and he took them up in his hands, laid his hands on them and blessed them. Isn't that nice? That's how we read it. Oh, Jesus blessed the children. Oh, oh. Bless you, John. Bless you, Rachel. That's what we think of when we read that word, because that's what we do. The blessing is a huge biblical concept, which is the favor, the power, and the anointing of God. He's not going, bless you, little children, because you're not important. Get out of the way while the adults look after it. He's saying, you are empowered because you have faith like children. Go do the business, kids, because these adults are letting you down. Do you get it? The blessing is the release of the anointed. Um, Mark chapter 5. This is so common that Jesus is doing it all the time, that when Jairus comes and his daughter's, well, basically dying, she's at the point of death at this point, she does die and then gets raised to the dead. He says to Jesus, because this is what Jesus has been doing, if you come and lay hands on her, she'll live. Why? Because the healing came through the laying on of hands. Remember, we're just looking at laying on of hands. The anointing comes in two ways, through prayer and through through laying on of hands. That's why we lay on on of hands when we pray for people who are sick. Jesus said, you'll lay hands on the sick and they'll be healed. Mark 16. Now, how else does it come? Well, it comes from the, the... So that's ordination... Blessing, healing, it comes in the whole package of impartation. And again, we see it in these two ways through prayer, through laying on of hands. So in Acts, we see a number of instances Pentecost, a uh, couple of chapters later, when they're praying for boldness, when the authorities tell them they can't go around healing people anymore using Jesus' name. They pray for boldness, the whole place shakes again, the building shakes, and they get even more of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then when it comes to the Gentiles, what's called the Gentile Pentecost in Acts chapter 10, again, they're praying, they pray for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes and shakes the building again. That's impartation in response to prayer. But then also in Acts, we see impartation in response to the laying on of hands. We see the presence of God invading places and people being empowered for ministry and to carry that, but carry it in such a way that the, the apostles saw it that they laid hands on people, the anointing and the empowerment came on those people, the impartation came on those people, and those people were then commissioned to go and lay hands on others. That's how the power of God got transmitted around the early church through prayer and through laying on of hands. Again, it's an elementary principle. This is how they did it. This is the church, the little old porky church, facing up to this huge, strict, dead religion called Judaism at the time, run by Pharisees and people who hadn't a clue about the reality of what God was trying to do. And they're facing up to that, they're facing up to the Roman Empire, and yet the church spreads across the known world. And it's carried by the anointing on people's lives. And the, and, and, and the, the empowerment to go and do the business. And so, 
when you see, in, let me show you the, the other way around. In Acts chapter 8, we've got a situation where um, basically some Gentiles get saved. That's people who aren't Jews. So these are the first lot of non-Jews that are getting saved. And uh, they don't get the Holy Spirit because nobody's told them about the Holy Spirit. They've decided Jesus is the Messiah and they want saving, but they, they, don't, they haven't got all the back catalogue that everybody else has got. So what do you do when you've got no back catalogue and no understanding? You can't sit there, because this is what we do in the church now. We'd, we'd, have, a, we'd have a training programme, three-year training programme, at great expense, with lots of books to read, and, and eventually you might be let loose on an afternoon Bible study. That's what we do, isn't it? We run programs for everything. The apostles are faced with like this outbreak of people who aren't Jews starting to turn to Jesus, like in their thousands, and they go, what are we doing? We can't run the three-year training program. Like, we went to Pharisee school for, like, 15 years, if you're Paul, and you go, like, I was the best of the Pharisee. I memorized the whole Old Testament. You can't do that route. That's, that's why revivals die, because we program them. We start putting training courses around revival. We start trying to teach people, and what did they do? They did something different. So they go up, they send Peter and John. So if you're going to send anybody, you're going to send Peter and John, the big guys, aren't you? First go, we've got a problem. Houston, well, Jerusalem in this case, we have a problem. We'll send, let's, let's do, what, sh- what should we do? And they, they all go, I'm not going, I'm not going, I don't know what to do. Right. And Peter, the guy that jumps out of boats and walks on water, he goes, I'm going. And John goes, I'm going. And they go, and what happens? They they lay hands on people. Now, the apostles who were at Jerusalem, this is Acts chapter 8, verse 13, heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he as yet hadn't fallen on them. So they pray. They had been baptized in the name, they got baptized, water baptism. Then what did they do? They short circuited, missed the whole training program laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit blasted them and empowered them and changed them. And they were then carriers of the anointing. So the gospel starts to spread beyond Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's done by this method, not by program training. Because they don't have the back catalogue of 19, 20 years of study of Hebrew scriptures. And so it's an impartation. And now I want you to see this because this is really important because it's a visible impartation. These, these things don't happen in secret. They're not quiet little, let's hide in the corner and go, oh, I've got Jesus. It's not like that. There's something visible that happens. This. How do I know that that created a visible impartation? How do I know that there was a manifestation in the Spirit? I don't know what the manifestation was, but there's something that tells other people something's changed. Because, that's right, Roger, Simon the sorcerer appears in the very next verse and tries to buy it. Because he's going, that would really be cool for my act. Because I can do all these magic tricks. Now, if I've got what I've just seen with those guys, I'm going to make a fortune. Come on, Peter John, how much money do you want? That's uh, verse 18, if you put it up, just so people can see it's there. Um, there you are, Simon. He's, and he goes, how much money do you want for it? So I can lay hands on people and they'll get that because it's astonishing. It's better than all my magic tricks. How are we going to do this? And, and they obviously tell him off and say, sorry, guys, you missed it. But the point is that that impartation was physically manifested. Something was obviously visible to everybody that things had changed. There was power around. There was miracles around. There was transformation in lives around. There may have been speaking in tongues around. There was all sorts of things around. And somebody tries to buy it. That's how we know it. It says he saw what was going on. How much of the power of God would an unbeliever see if he looked at the church now? I don't see anybody offering to buy what we've got, do you? 
Why? Because we miss some of these fundamental things. Okay, let me uh, push on. Paul, who's the, the main interpreter of the New Covenant, wrote a big, uh, well, two incredible letters explaining how the New Covenant works. And it, so it emphasizes grace and faith and the total victory of Jesus at the cross that made that possible. First of those is Romans. And we see right at the start of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, that he gives prominence to this idea of impartation. In other words, he sees himself, he knows he's an apostle, he's appointed by God, and he says that the thing that he desires to do is impart what God's given him. I want to impart to you. And it's not impart to you something all my training. It's I want to impart to you spiritual gifts. Because that will allow you to grow and it'll allow you to minister and it'll allow the gospel to spread. That word impartation, uh, it's quite cute. I, I think it sounds really nice. It's metadidomi. Oh, isn't that cute? Metadidomi. And, and basically, well, I think I put the definition on there. It means a, an offer by way of change. So, Basically, you're offering something to somebody so the ownership of it changes. So it's a transference. It, it's, it's a permanent ownership of what is put on you as you receive it. It doesn't get taken away. That's why we see very gifted people with no character and integrity. And very gifted people who can do some horrible things. Because you don't get taken away. That's why we shouldn't rush to... to um, release people in ministry. Now, why am I telling you that? I'm telling you this because I'll come back to where this whole series started, but I'll show you in a different place. In Romans chapter 15, Paul makes an astonishing statement. And it's very similar to that one that I've quoted from Jesus, you know, preach the gospel, lay hands, cast out demons, and the rest of it. This is what he says. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. So I've got no reason to glory in anything else. It's just God things. For I don't dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hasn't accomplished through me. In other words, I'm keeping my mouth shut about what he's still got to sort in me because that's not giving him any glory. In word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. Paul was the one who took the gospel first outside the Jews. And this is what he says. In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Lycrium, big area, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Let me read you that again. In word and deed... In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that in this big area, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying there is no gospel if there's no signs and wonders. It's not fully preaching the gospel. It's part preaching the gospel. You can't separate the mighty deeds from the mighty words. That's why the church cannot sacrifice the supernatural for numbers. Because it's not the gospel. It might be convenient, but it's not the gospel according to Paul. And, and I've just, I just realized this over the last three or four months, and I find that really shocking. That, that we, that all of us have existed for so long thinking the gospel was just a presentation of the cross and forgiveness of sins. And Paul's saying, that's not the gospel. It's just part of it. And that's really shocking because we, we built our whole church structures and our whole church programs around words and presentation. And Paul's saying, that's only part of what you're meant to be doing. 
And we need to, like, wake up, don't we? Yeah? yeah? Okay. I'm just going to finish up here, and then we're going to pay for people. Um, and uh, we're going to lay hands on people. Okay. I don't think. The point is that ministry, what we do, isn't simply about what is said. It's also about what is done. In, in Galatians, when uh, some new teachers come in and try to lead the Galatians astray into works instead of grace, something strange happens because Paul doesn't try and argue them out of it by natural arguments and saying all this. He actually, first thing he does, he says, Remember what happened when you first got the Holy Spirit? Did all, that, did all those things, all the manifestations of the Spirit happen in your life by grace or by works? And, and, and so he appeals to the visible signs first, not the intellectual signs, in order to convince people. And the reason our faith is, is so shaky in, in, in the body of Christ is that we appeal to the words, and that gives a shaky foundation to faith without the visible signs that go with it. See, words can always be argued against. Signs and wonders can't. And, and that's why Paul says, so you could base your faith on the power of the Spirit and the signs and wonders, not just on the word. And, and that's why we've got, and, and that's why, you know, ultimately, the, the thing that Jesus says where the end time church, a lot, a lot of the church, its faith grows cold, It'll be because it wasn't based on the power. It was based on the words. So when persecution comes, it doesn't stand because it can be argued against. When atheism, vehement atheism like we now have comes, people fall away from the body of Christ. Because it's not based on the power. You with me? I know this is really deep and challenging, but I'm going on holiday on Tuesday, so I don't care. Let me, let me put it this way. For all the early church leaders, you see this consistently right through what they say, impartation of anointing was necessary for effective ministry. And, and they saw it as um, like a catalyst for that ministry. It, it set it off. It ignited it. And that that ministry and, and, and what they were doing was characterized by the manifest presence of God and the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. And nothing in this world can stand against that. If we want a revival, we can't have a revival by talk. We have to have a revival by power. So we don't want a better presentation of forgiveness and Jesus. We want a straight presentation with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit backed up by signs and wonders and miracles. And to do that, we have to be empowered. You see, Argentina didn't get changed because a bunch of people got their act together in being better at talking about the gospel or got excited. or went, It didn't get changed because people went to a great meeting and said the fire fell and, and then we had another great meeting and then we had another great meeting, we had another great meeting. It, it got changed because people rediscovered this principle of impartation and it been transferable and its power to ignite. Now, It comes for those who are hungry enough and humble enough. Two qualities. Um, but there's also another quality you need. Because I kind of guess we've all been around in prayer lines, or a lot of us have been around in prayer lines, had hands laid on, and perhaps got touched by the Holy Spirit, 
and then the next morning, so, so what was that about then? Yeah? Or what happened? And I think it's, it's sad that often we, we can get so familiar with the things of the Spirit that we go away unchanged even so, even though it is the Holy Spirit. Why is that? You see, another fundamental principle to go with laying on of hands. The gospel, the whole gospel, the whole sozo, works by grace through faith. The laying on of hands is the grace bit. It doesn't work without the faith to say, I'm going to believe I got something and I'm going to wait and see what happens in my life because I'm believing I got something. I Facebooked a few people yesterday who were at the meeting on Friday night and say, basically say, did you enjoy it? Great to see you there. This is what I got. This is from a retired pastor. Um, I loved it. I received a new anointing. I went home, prayed, and healed my husband. The next day, I prayed for a lady I didn't know on the train going to London. She burst into tears. I ministered to her, and it was incredibly powerful. I'm anointed and sitting in the right place right now. What's the difference? Some people will have gone away and go, well, that was a good meeting. The difference is she believed she got something, so she did. It's a, it's a funny thing. It's a mystery. Why it only works with faith? I don't know. It's the way God did it. You have to believe to receive. But that's cool because God's giving all the time and, and he's, he's pouring out all the time and he's looking to it in part all the time. So there's always more and he's always waiting for us to come and get the more and be hungry for it. 